0: Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co host, Octavia Bright. Hi Octavia, how are you? I am exhausted,
1: (laughs) but not in a bad way. I've just been intensely busy with work the last few weeks and also seeing friends more because it's been enough time since my second vaccination. So it's been wonderful, but I'm also completely out of practice with pacing myself (laughs) and getting the balance right and I've just run myself a bit ragged. But also... The main thing is please allow me a Leo moment, but I'm really looking forward to next week because I'm turning 35 on Thursday and I have a very good feeling about this stage of life. I think this is like a good middle bit and also any excuse to eat lots of cake makes me very happy. So although by the time this plays out, it's going to I will have been
0: 35 for like a month. (laughs) (laughs) Well, happy both early and late birthday. I'm so Thank sad you. to be missing it. I'm very devastated that I can't celebrate with you. I always seem to be away on your birthday. It's I
1: know. Right? I mean it's- I try not to take it personally, but
0: <laughs> it's really rude of me. It is rude of you. What it means, my love, is when you get back, you're gonna have to make me a cake. Of course. I'm <laughs> I'm not great at making cakes, so maybe I can make you something else. I think But that I fair. wish you all of the cake and love. And as somebody who's been thirty five now for a few months, it's a fine age. <laughs> it's <a> the ringing endorsement. <laughs> what about you? How are you apart from being 35 and yes, fine? <laughs> I'm 35 and fine. I've actually had the opposite experience of you because I've been basically living as a hermit for the last 10 days because I'm flying to the US tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Um, and I am trying not to get COVID. So, yes, being in my home a lot and not really seeing anyone. But How's in-
1: your sanity levels?
0: <laughs> it's fine i mean we did that for a lot of this year didn't we so it's it's been fine i haven't seen my family in a long time and i'm going to see them and i cannot wait so that's how i'm feeling
1: oh i'm so excited for you also just the change of scene it's going to be so reinvigorating
0: i know it i hope so It, it all feels very daunting at this stage and there's like feelings of guilt as well i don't it's not straightforward is it anymore, but I'm, I'm so glad I'm doing it. So you will again be listening to this after I've done it and hopefully it doesn't, it isn't all terrible. <laughs> um, but I, I can report back if it. Is. Yeah, exactly. And please bring me <laughs> something back from Boston. I shall. But onto the show. Today, we're really excited to welcome the author, Sean Fay, whose book, The Transgender Issue, is a necessary and inspiring text in which she argues that we are having the wrong conversation about trans people and that the struggle for trans liberation is all of our struggle. And in honor of it, which really aims to change the terms of a cultural conversation, We're going to talk more widely about books that seek to shift perspectives, including the ones that shifted ours. Perhaps literature's ability to change the whole world is still in question, but as James Baldwin said in a 1979 interview with the New York Times... The bottom line is this, you write in order to change the world, knowing perfectly well that you probably can't, but also knowing that literature is indispensable to the world. The world changes according to the way people see it, and if you alter, even by a millimeter, the way people look at reality, then you can change it. If there is no moral question, there is no reason to write. I'm an old-fashioned writer, and despite the odds, I want to change the world. So we are channeling that spirit, James oh, Baldwin, always coming up. Um, I actually saw somebody post that on Twitter when we were thinking about what to do the show about, and it seemed perfect. Yeah, um, it is perfect.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm with him. I'm I'm really with him on that. I'm an
0: optimist about the power of literature. I am too, although we can talk about whether we overstate it on the show as well. But <laughs> always bringing the, <laughs> the counterpoint for <view>. you. <laughs> It's important, you know. Before we get started, Octavia, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit more about Sean? I'd love to. Sean Fay was born in
1: Bristol and is now based in London. After training as a lawyer, she left the law to pursue writing and campaigning, working in the charity sector with Amnesty International and Stonewall. She was an editor-at-large at Dazed, and her writing has been published by The Guardian, The Independent, and Vice, among others. Fay recently launched an acclaimed podcast series, Call Me Mother, interviewing trailblazing LGBTQ plus elders. The Transgender Issue is her first book. Also... As a reminder, we are on Patreon. If you want to support the work we do and get extra content, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash Lit Friction and get monthly exclusive minisodes as well as the chance to suggest topics for us to talk about.
0: But for now, stay tuned for our interview with Sean, a more general discussion of what it means to write to change the world, and finally, our usual book recommendations. So stay tuned because there might be some Ch changes <laughs> happening on literary friction. She did not. They <laughs> <laughs> <I> did. <laughs> Sean Faye, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So we've asked you to start with a reading from the transgender issue. Do you mind setting it up for us?
2: Yeah, this is just a reading actually from the very beginning parts of the book, and it kind of explains what the book is intending to do and uh, why I wrote it, I suppose. So yeah, it begins from the very first page. The liberation of trans people would improve the lives of everyone in our society, I say liberation because I believe that the humbler goals of trans rights or trans equality are insufficient. Trans people should not aspire to be equals in a world that remains both capitalist and patriarchal and which exploits and degrades those who live in it. Rather, we ought to seek justice for ourselves and others alike. Trans people have endured over a century of injustice. We have been discriminated against, pathologized, and victimised. Our full emancipation will only be achieved if we can imagine a society that is completely transformed from the one in which we live. This book is primarily concerned with explaining how society, as it is currently arranged, often makes trans people's lives unnecessarily difficult. Yet, in posing solutions to these problems, it does not limit itself to thinking solely about trans people, but also encompasses anyone who is routinely disempowered and dispossessed. Full autonomy over our bodies, free and universal health care, affordable housing for all, powers in the hands of those who work rather than those privileged few who extract profit from our vastly inequitable system, sexual freedom, including freedom from sexual violence, and an end to the mass incarceration of human beings are all crucial ingredients in the construction of a society in which trans people are no longer abused, mistreated, or subjected to violence. Such systemic changes would also particularly benefit everyone else forced to the margins of society, both in the UK and across the world. The demand for true trans liberation echoes and overlaps with the demands of workers, socialists, feminists, anti-racists and queer people. They are radical demands in that they go to the root of what our society is and what it could be. For this reason, the existence of trans people is a source of constant anxiety for many who are either invested in the status quo or fearful about what would replace it. In order to neutralise the potential threat to social norms posed by trans people's existence, the establishment has always sought to confine and curtail their freedom. In 21st century Britain, this has been achieved in large part by belittling our political needs and turning them into a culture war issue. Typically, trans people are lumped together as the transgender issue, dismissing and erasing the complexity of trans lives, reducing them to a set of stereotypes on which various social anxieties can be brought to bear. By and large, the transgender issue is seen as a toxic debate, a difficult topic, chewed over, usually by people who are not trans themselves, on television shows, in newspaper opinion pieces, and in university philosophy departments. Actual trans people are rarely to be seen. This book intentionally and deliberately reappropriates the phrase transgender issue in order to outline the reality of the issues facing trans people today, rather than as they are imagined by those people who do not face them. Today, representational equality and redistributive politics elude trans people, even as more and more trans people are coming out than ever before. Trans people have now become one of a number of targets in right-wing media, alongside, for instance, Muslims and immigrants generally, Gypsy Roma and Traveller communities, Black Lives Matter, the Fat Acceptance Movement, and feminists challenging state violence against women. All these groups and more have been reduced to issues in a toxic and polarised public rivalry between value systems. The past few years have seen discussions around trans people become not only poisonous, but crucially banal. The topic of trans has now been limited to a handful of repetitive talking points. Whether non-binary people exist and whether gender-neutral pronouns are reasonable, whether trans children living with dysphoria should be allowed to start their transition, whether trans women will dominate women's events in the Olympics, and the endless debate over toilets and changing rooms. This book does not regurgitate these talking points again. I believe that forcing trans people to involve themselves in these closed-loop debates ad infinitum is itself a tactic of those who wish to oppress us. Such debates are time-consuming, exhausting distractions from what we should really be focusing on, the material ways in which trans people are oppressed. With this book, I want to change the trajectory to move beyond this discussion of trans people as framed by those who want to stoke a so-called culture war and to start a new, healthier conversation about trans people in the UK and beyond.
0: Thank you, Sean. I think that gives a really good sense of what you're doing in the book. And I love the way that you came out and said in this book, and it it was very clarifying for me, that the conversation around, quote unquote, trans rights is a conversation that is set by cisgendered people. And you say, very clearly, we are having the wrong conversation. So I wonder when you When you went about thinking about what kind of a conversation we should be having, what did you want to include in the book and how did you settle upon what you were going to discuss?
2: What I felt was, as as you kind of mentioned in your question, I realized that there was this strange and quite frustrating paradox when you are a trans person yourself and one that works in the media as I do. But yeah, the discussion of what even when people are starting to say trans issues or trans rights or the transgender question or whatever they want to say, is that there was almost none of these discussions chimed with the reality of what I knew personally from people I've worked with, my friends, what they were experiencing. And I knew that, you know, often what you might get is one quick paragraph saying, well, we all know that trans people, you know, have a tough time and are discriminated against. But here's the issue with you know, greater inclusion. You know, here's, here's why it's an issue or a problem. And actually, I was like, well, do we all know? I mean, <laughs> people would say that. And I like, Does everyone actually know that? Because we never really get to see or hear the real lived experiences of trans people and hear trans people speak for themselves. And, you know, even I am quite a privileged trans person. So I'm not reflective of the vast majority of trans people's experiences. So I wanted to elevate those experiences. So, for example think of really illustrative statistic is that one in four british trans people have experienced homelessness in their lifetime and so like that is a hugely high number like, huge overrepresentation over of homelessness in a in a community compared to the wider community and so like you know we never we never see those discussions about the material conditions in which trans people live or hear trans people talking about them Um, So I really wanted to have a healthier conversation that centred trans experience and not cisgender anxiety. And I also wanted to kind of broaden that out and say, you know, all that people are ever hearing is that trans people, there's a problem, there's a burden, there's an issue, they're a new thing. And actually, a lot of the things that would improve trans people's lives are things that overlap with things that would improve the lives of everyone and to have an idea about the kind of society we want to create That's more empathetic and kind and allows people to lead fulfilled lives, which is something that chimes with what so many people are kind of fighting for in different groups and from different political positions.
0: On the further subject of of approach and style, you write that you very deliberately didn't want to write a memoir about your own experience being trans or transitioning. And um, you have this great line, oversharing or being adversarial in the first person are still the main options for the professional trans writer who wishes to write about trans issues. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that kind of societal pressure on trans writers, but also why you very deliberately wanted to, to write the book in the way that you did.
2: Um, yeah, so I think, yeah, it goes sort of really to the back to the history of kind of trans, yeah, literature really is that primarily the trans memoir? has been the primary form in which trans writers have been allowed to write. And so uh, in Britain, probably the most famous example in the 70s was the uh, travel writer, Jan Morris, who was very famous for her travel writing anyway, but um, she transitioned and she wrote her, her memoir, Conundrum, which describes her going abroad for sex reassignment surgery and kind of uses the act of physical transition as a kind of starting point for commentary on gender and wider social issues, but it requires a high level of candor. And I think, you know, like Janet Mock in the US um, with Redefining Realness uh, in I think 2014 and Juliet Jakes here in the UK, that whilst I've actually loved Trans Memoir and I'm not trying to kind of do down uh, writers who've written about it, it is interesting that it is the only literary form that is often in the mainstream allowed as a a prelude for political speech. And what I kind of felt was that it, considering that, you know, in in the UK we've seen, I don't know why I'm no longer talking to white people about race, that kind of use of anecdotal, which is slightly different to memoir. Renier de Lodge in that book does use anecdotes from her professional career, but um, can articulate an argument about being a member of a minority without having to be confessional. And, and And I felt that trans, writing in the UK had, had not quite had that moment yet and it was necessary the other strand to it um which I do say in the book is i didn't really feel that like you know i i am not really the sort of i think trans memoir is still important but i'm not really the trans person people need to be reading a memoir about i'm a middle class white trans person who went to a very nice school and then i went to oxford then i became a lawyer and then i became a journalist and you know i lived as a gay boy for a few years and then i transitioned it's just not <laughs> it's just not very interesting <laughs> like it's quite a dull transition memoir i've had quite a nice life <laughs> um, with with some ups and downs but like yeah not not particularly that wild so there was part of me that was like i didn't want to center myself
1: well, yeah, I mean, one of the really important things that, that you do in this book is, well, you've got a chapter called Trans Life Now. And and I think Carrie and I both found reading that chapter, it really brought home to us how obviously warped the reporting on tr- the trans issue. I'm heavily quote quote marking <laughs> with my fingers there, but I wanted to ask you about that chapter because there was some stuff in there that I think a lot of cis straight people don't necessarily realize. Like um, you write about the legacy of Section 28, which was that horrifically homophobic policy implemented by Margaret Thatcher. And I I know quite a lot about Section 28 and i read about it and everything, but I hadn't realized how recently it was still in effect. And you you trace a very clear path of the negative impact that had in terms of what it what it sets up in society for deep rooted mistrust and prejudice of people who are different, quote unquote, different from the heteronormative sort of status quo, which obviously has an enormous effect on the ability for trans people to live with normal kind of human rights and respect that, that, that everybody deserves. But I wondered if you could just talk a bit about that, because I'm sure there'll be people listening who don't really know about the legacy of Section 28 and how it relates to the argument that you make in your book.
2: Yeah, so Section Twenty Eight was because interesting, and it has a lot of parallels with the media conversation around trans lives now. But in the eighties, obviously, I think you know there there had been the Gay Liberation Front in the UK in the seventies, perhaps a sort of growing, some militant and some kind of slightly more assimilationist respectable gay campaigning, gay prides in the seventies and eighties, early eighties in the UK. And what was starting to happen is, I think you know, more and more. There was a kind of more liberal attitude in some parts of the country, particularly in, in left wing and labour run councils about starting to yeah, educate people about um, sexual diversity, basically gay people, gay and lesbian people in schools. And then there became this huge right wing moral panic in the media, especially with the AIDS crisis, about um, children being seduced into the gay lifestyle, and converted, and that it was these left wing labour councils who were... Basically, yeah, rec- helping gay people to recruit the young. And so the Tory party and Margaret Thatcher's government um, acted to stem that tide and so passed Section 28, which refers to the Local Governments Act. And it um, stopped the uh, promotion of homosexuality as a pretended family relationship in any maintained school, i.e. in any state school. And what it effectively did is it, so it came into force in May 1988. So I'm 33 So, I was born in March 1988. So, Section 28 came into force when I was two months old and it remained in force until 2003 in England. So, when I was Hmm. 15, 16. So, that's like all of my education right up to like sixth form, right? But obviously, it's right. legacy goes on much longer because what it effectively did is it gagged teachers or anyone that worked in a school from talking about LGBTQ issues in any positive way, from intervening when LGBTQ bullying was happening, you know, it created this whole culture of fear. It wasn't part of teacher training. And of course, yeah, OK, it was repealed in, in 2003, but all the teachers that have trained in the time under Section 28... Received, you know, it's not like that training was updated. It takes a long time for the effects of that to start to wear off in the kinds of people who become teachers, in the attitudes that schools have. And what I discuss in the book is that unfortunately it created this culture of silence that made a lot of LGBTQ people feel very alone at school, allowed bullying to flourish. And of course, not all teachers. Um, and people who go into teaching are not you know some I remember at my time at school some unfortunately some teachers were as homophobic as like <laughs> the teenage boys I was around um yeah. and so it takes yeah, and so what it you know so what we're talking about is a lot of people who are not very old, early thirties and older, grew up with that quite damaged environment, and unfortunately what i why I discuss it in the book is because whilst it's sort of, things have gradually started to improve for cisgender, lesbian, gay, and bi pupils, and I I found that when I worked at Stonewalls, I'd encounter these 15-year-olds at Youth Pride, or whatever, and they'd be like, I'm chair of my school's LGBTQ society, and, you know, I'm out as gay, and a 15-year-old boy, and obviously that's great, but I'd be like, we do not have the same experience. I was on chat rooms talking to old men <laughs> when I was 14 because that was the only way that I was learning anything about any kind of sex or relationship that might not be straight. So obviously, whilst that, right. all those improvements are there, unfortunately, what is happening at the moment is the moral panic around trans children and young people. Uh, it means that we're seeing a wave of, like, just as there was the gay agenda narrative in the 80s, is now we have the idea of gender identity ideology or trans ideology infiltrating schools and there have been a number of legal challenges in the UK by anti-trans campaign groups, these kind of safe schools alliance or concerned parents groups. Um, it's often the language that homophobes and transphobes use around children is they they sort of give them, their organisations those kind of names, concerned parents. And they've got, you know, when there's been like inclusion guidelines at local authorities to try and kind of make the experience of trans kids a bit easier, there are legal challenges trying to get them removed because they say, you know, if a trans girl's allowed to use the toilets at her school or whatever that's that's a risk um you know if if you could be encouraging people to like this idea of social contagion a bit like gay people recruiting in the 80s is is that there's a social contagion and that there are too many kids coming out as trans now and one of the things I point out is that they're actually even though the numbers have risen um trans people are at 0.6 percent of the population and the um, even if every child that's kind of presenting to the NHS as having gender identity issues is trans, which not all of them will be at the moment, it's 0.09% of all children. So actually, you'd expect the numbers to be much higher than they are. (laughs) So if anything, we have this kind of media narrative that's, oh my god, there are are trans kids everywhere, there's a social contagion. And actually, it's nothing of the sort. In fact, there are still, you know, you'd, you'd expect there to be more trans kids coming out.
0: Yeah, and especially on on the issue of children, I think you make a, a very compelling case in the chapter about healthcare in particular, about just how difficult it actually is for children who are experiencing intense and distressing gender dysphoria to get any sort of medical help because of all of the rules that are in place. And all of these panics around things like puberty blockers, which... It seems almost impossible for anyone under 18 to even access. And then also you make the point that, and I'm ashamed for not really realizing this, and I think it's because of the media narrative, no children under 18 get any genital surgeries in the UK. And yet what the narrative is, is so different from the real struggle of trans people throughout their lives in the healthcare system.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and there is a whole chapter on healthcare in the book, and what I'm keen to kind of um, look at with trans healthcare, so yeah, with young people, I mean, the intervention on, uh, the, the earliest intervention that could be made medically, because when we talk about trans children, typically we're talking, especially if we're talking about um, children pre-puberty, is we're talking about social transition, so change of clothes, dress, name, and pronouns. Um, and in the book, I speak to the family of a, and I go and meet them, the family of a trans girl who is in the later years of primary school now. And sort of they explain about their own struggle with the process of when she was three or four. Asserting this female identity, despite the fact that obviously they believe they had a son, and about how they were initially, you know, they were reluctant to accept it. And her mother was like, well, you know, this is a boy who is who is got who's confused and is asking to like play with dolls or to wear dresses. And she tried to have all these negotiations, and it just wasn't it wasn't that, and it wasn't going away. And you know, her distress grew and grew, and then ultimately she was able to socially transition, and that pretty much eliminated her depression. <laughs> you know, she was depressed as a you know sort of like three four year old pretty much almost immediately and she seems to be very happy in primary school at the moment although they are you know they have concerns about her future but so far so good and yeah I think so there's that about very young kids and puberty blockers are a a reversible treatment which can be used to pause puberty and they were designed they've been used for since the 1970s for girls cisgender girls who um sometimes start um precocious puberty it's just a natural variation in which they begin puberty like at eight and of course that can cause huge distress being out of comfort with peers um you know the fact that an eight year old you know you might start menstruating all that stuff and and it can be distressing and it can cause restricted height so puberty blockers have been used on cisgender children first and then since the 90s they were used as a kind of way to sort of arrest the unavoidable changes in some children of puberty because of how distressing they were to give the child and their family more time to consider their gender identity. But yeah, there's a huge restriction on them. Very few people, considering the amount of they've been on BBC Newsnight a lot, I think it was, until recently, it was under 16s in the UK who were on the most, in England and Wales, sorry, it was 95 kids under the age of 16. And they would have been kids who were in, this, in the kind of gender identity system from when they were very young. Probably, and who was probably very acutely dysphoric. And so, yeah, for me, I'm keen to kind of move away from that because obviously it is important to talk about that. But the reality is, is that the healthcare system for most trans young people is like a three year wait now from when you go to your GP before you get any support. And of course, in a teenager's life, if that's what, if you're getting severely dysphoric about your body changing, three years in an adolescent's life is a very long time unless you come out before you're 10 you have no chance of um, really having any medical intervention, probably until you're an adult at this point. And, and yeah, and so I, I'm keen to look at that because the whole book looks at trans healthcare as not this kind of cis anxiety about what happens if it's all happening too fast. <laughs> and actually the reality is it's not really happening in the timelines that people want. It's actually you know, increasing their distress. We have a huge systemic failure in the UK and that's for adults and children. So I talk in the case of trans adults about the parallels between trans healthcare and abortion, because abortion affects so many more people, half the human population potentially. Um, but they're the same thing is that often they're subject to attacks and restrictions because of conservative regimes which want to kind of deny people bodily autonomy. They want to deny women's bodily autonomy because conservatives have always seen women as like vessels for reproduction. And then the, for trans people, it's that trans people present this anxiety about, well, if people can change sex or can medically reassign their sex, that that threatens the sex roles on which like a patriarchal system depends. We need to know who's a man who's a woman, and then we need to know what a man's job and a woman's job is. So they're linked anxieties. Right. And so that's why the same... That's why Trump literally... <laughs> he was like, one day he was restricting reproductive health care, and the next day he was res- restricting trans
1: health care. It's because they're the same anxiety. I was really also struck by your discussion of um access and regret in 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 that context as well because you frame that again in the way that um people talk about access and regret to uh the decision to have an abortion the way the anti-abortion lobby utilizes those perspectives and and um i wondered you know if you could talk a little bit about that as well just that this (laughs) this wild anxiety that suddenly everybody seems to have about trans young people taking steps towards transition and then regretting it when there's no anxiety about uh, human beings taking steps towards self-destruction, you know? It's, <laughs> it's very frustrating.
2: Yeah, and I think, I think the first thing to say about that, about particularly in the context of um, tr- the fear around trans regret, is there is a deep-seated, and this is a cisgender, non-trans worldview, That I think a lot of people probably carry inside themselves and don't fully realize it yet or um or or probably are unconscious of it is this idea that actually to be a trans person is not a desirable thing to be a trans person is at best something we might allow some very sad people who seem very unhappy with their bodies to do as a society okay if you're an adult you can change your body and we'll pretend that you're the opposite sex I mean that's kind of what the origins of um trans healthcare were and I think it's still that view is that like okay fine we'll now some people but it's the same thing and again I think it's very similar to what perhaps even like you know 10 20 years ago you'd get you know me maybe people liberals or whatever start to say well gay people are okay but it'd be like I wouldn't really want my child to be gay and I think there probably are quite a lot of people who think that about trans right is that it's like we are inferior and that a trans life is fundamentally a miserable life and so where that comes in with regret is that it's much easier for a cisgender person who has that view and hasn't maybe reconstructed or doesn't... I think it's changes when people know trans people personally, but the trouble is with such a small minority that many people won't. I think where that anxiety taps into... about regret particularly around kids is that it's easier to imagine the horror that people feel about someone's mistaken the fact that they're trans and then they've 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 transitioned and they're going to regret it and that's so much worse than what it would be is to be being forced to live in the wrong gender role and to be forced to live with untreated dysphoria and of course it's really frustrating as a trans person who you know myself and that's why so many trans adults are such advocates for Um, greater options. It doesn't always have to be medical transition, I should say, um, but it's about having a more explorative and less high stakes view around gender diversity and transition in children. It's because obviously many trans adults experienced much greater pain at being kind of restricted from access to pursuing essentially the destiny that they wanted to pursue. Um, And in fact, the fear of regret in cisgender people and obviously some people will regret. I mean, it's the same thing as abortion, right? But, um, but it's like, it's so much worse that imagine if you became one of those awful trans people and then you really regretted it, like, and then you're broken and it's, you know, you'll never be able to go back fully as, to, as you were. And it can be very hard to communicate that. I quote it in the book, a medical legal ethics expert who says, you know, failing to treat in this case, failing to treat trans people 's dysphoria is not a morally neutral option. <laughs> you know actually the distress the sort of the the effect that that can have on someone 's life, particularly young persons for anyone 's life you know that that's a moral injustice that you're doing to people and in, and in some ways. If we were just more accepting of gender diversity, variant bodies, if we didn't live in a culture that had spent decades mocking and deriding trans people's bodies and how they talk and how they sound and how they dress or whatever, then actually we could all be a bit more relaxed about people maybe you know, not having to commit, (laughs) you know, that's why I think it's great that more and more young people identify as non-binary is because there isn't this commitment. You have to go, you know, you have to have this very binary male to female, female to male transition is that actually there, we can open up space for, well, allow a person to kind of, you know, maybe go so far. And then if they don't want to, then to, you know, to say, well, you can always, you know, you can always change your pronouns again. And I don't think it's that big a deal.
1: You have a chapter about, feminism and i thought that was such a nuanced and important discussion of like the difficult coexistence of different kinds of feminist thought that is such a letdown i find as a feminist i find it such a letdown that it, there can't be more of a kind of acceptance of these things in a more general sense but you know i think you really get at the heart of of why these things have historically been a bit gnarly and then also I think what I love the most, actually, is that you you land in a place of real hope, and that felt so important <laughs> because <laughs> because of because of all of this stuff being so gnarly at times. And I do think, you know, um, that the future has got the opportunity to be really hopeful, and that the idea of exploding the gender binary. Is, is a really, really hopeful one. <laughs> um, but I wanted to ask you, you know, how you feel about that. Like, do you think of this as a hopeful book? Do you feel hopeful about the future?
2: Um, yes, because I think uh, it's an interesting question because, uh, you know, I'm also, as, uh, you know, as you say about the radical side is that, you know, I'm a left-wing thinker. I haven't actually used that phrase so far, but I am, and, and this book is, a I ar- articulate a socialist argument. It's, it's an anti-capitalist argument. I am kind of of the left. I see myself as a left-wing thinker, as much as a trans thinker, as much as a feminist thinker, et cetera. And the trouble is, is, you know, particularly now in the moments in which we live with kind of the growth of the far right, the growth of kind of these like reactionary narratives, is that it's really important, you know, if you're going to be a kind of radical thinker or a left-wing thinker, you have to still, you have to retain hope because what you're hoping for and what you're kind of working for and what your work is, is to to think about, in my case, and write about, I mean, I'm not, I I would, I don't describe myself as an activist, but I think it's movements have to have, you know, writers and activists and people who do different kinds of work. So I see myself as part of a movement, is you have to have hope for the future, because otherwise, well, you, (laughs) you can't become pessimistic. And so yeah, I do see it as very hopeful. And I think what you were saying about the tensions in feminism, what I would say there, if I was being generous, is, I think where some of the anxieties that come from the kind of strands of feminism that are hostile to trans people and to non-binary discourse, but to, and to trans women, is uh, you know, many many women are drawn into feminism because they have experienced at the hands of patriarchy awful things and terrible things. And there are also material impacts. So I I discuss in the book about, you know, the, the fact that the attack of uh, you know, austerity in the UK for the last 10 years affected women a lot more than it affected men, the cut to domestic violence services, the cut to refuges. Um And so, you know, there can be almost a slide into pessimism. And I, what I sometimes see in anti-trans feminism is a pessimism where it's kind of like there there is an acceptance of male violence and, and gender-based oppression as unavoidable and so what becomes the anxiety is circling the wagons and defining the boundaries of who gets to be a woman at all and i can understand why people who are maybe hurt do that it can be very hard to have hope and so when you hear so sometimes you know if i'm being generous when they might hear you know discourse when i say about dismantling the gender binary when actually they might be a feminist, but you know, they're a feminist because they're angry, quite rightly, is that it can be hard to really truly believe that there is never going to be you know, many binaries, male, female, man, woman, but also male, violent, oppressive, woman to, is to suffer, is to be oppressed. And of course, like, if, you, if you actually believe that that's unchangeable, that's a very pessimistic, unhopeful view Because, you know, just just as I say with trans people, feminists have to hope that women will be liberated. Feminists have to hope that we can get rid of patriarchy. We have to hope for ways that we can kind of um, end patriarchal violence. And so, yeah, I think often I wanted it to be hopeful because often sometimes the worst transphobia comes from people who who have have maybe lost hope a little bit that things could Mm. be different.
0: Yeah, and and speaking of kind of coming together and and hopefulness, I found the chapter Kissing Cousins, the T and LGBT, really instructive and informative of, again, like kind of getting into the weeds of, of these issues. And even just the way you discuss how LGBTQ were all kind of put together as different identities that had something in common, even comes from a kind of cis framing of of how these different groups are in the world and that's what creates some of the maybe perceived divisions within within that grouping although of course as you point out like that it's really a minority of say you know lesbians who are not okay with trans people and I wonder if you if you always felt that you needed to write that chapter if that was something really important to get into in terms of external perceptions but also just thinking through especially looking towards a more hopeful future like what does it mean to have a kind of collective voice of of different identities that have some things in common but also you know have real differences
2: um absolutely because yeah, what was odd about this kind of new sort of media framing sometimes that like trans people were particularly like an antagonist to lesbian gay men and bi people is that yeah I would see this in you know in in newspapers that in in the UK that themselves were really homophobic back in the 80s and 90s and suddenly it's no we're defending gay people against the awful trans people and what I kind of do chart a little bit it's one of the more anecdotal parts of the book is that you know there was this odd Um, I I know the term gaslighting is used too much, but this odd dissonance (laughs) where, you know, I had been subject to homophobia a lot of my adolescence and I had initially come out as gay, as it's common to, you know, for a lot of trans people of my generation who know that they were, you know, they both, I had the both the odd experience of wanting to be the other gender, but also knowing I wanted to sleep with the wrong person when I was a teenager. And I think, yeah, I had this odd dissonance that, like, just in my own life, <laughs> I've been surrounded my entire life since I was, like, or even aware of gay people. Like, from when I was like 11 or 12, the boys that I was around were gay boys, and like most of them grew up, you know, and came out. And I was working at an LGBT charity, and, you know, almost all my colleagues were cisgender lesbians. And, um, yeah, queer people, LGB people, like, were always around my life. And and so there's that. And there's, yeah, and also the fact, you know, we share, we've historically shared social space. If I go out to a club, I mean, (laughs) you know, pre-pandemic times and hopefully soon. But, you know, the people that I'm mixing with, you know, it's kind of like, it's it's all of us. It's like all LGBTQ. So it just didn't really. It just felt like it was very odd to read these straight people, <laughs> often basically saying that there was this huge divide when it's just not the substance or the material experience of my own life. And then and then crucially though is also that like what i was keen to sh- to kind of write about is that the lgbt thing right is it, it's it's a political coalition and um, i think the best kind of um summary of it that i discuss in the book is it's a quote from from a trans person that uh, that was at a talk a few years ago where it's like well why are we all lumped together and they said well we all get beaten up by the same people and that's <laughs> that's very blunt but it's kind of true is that the coalition emerges out of the fact that yeah we're just all viewed ultimately By the most right-wing patriarchal kind of forces in the world as like freaks as queers right that's where the the reclamation the term queer comes from is you know we're all just queers and while we may have all these internal divisions and it's kind of is key you know my experience isn't the same as a gay man's and it's not the same as a cisgender lesbians but while we kind of infight about about these small distinctions We don't have to actually all mesh together we don't have to be all be the same what we have to realize is that the reason that our coalition is stronger together is because the people who would want to kind of harm us all um, see us essentially always the same. And even if now it's con- it's convenient for some Christian right or right-wing groups to kind of separate trans people off because they're the kind of more recently visible and the smallest and the most vulnerable because they're the smallest group in that letter, they won't stop there. They still don't like gay people. They just feel like gay people are kind of have advanced a little bit too far for them to really be as covert about. But yeah, absolutely. I think I think it was always part of the book was that I wanted to you know, explain this is why this coalition exists. This is why it's important. It will continue to be important. And yeah, we don't all have to be the same. Our agendas don't have to mesh together all the time for us to um, realize that we have shared political goals and that's what solidarity is about really.
0: Sean Fay, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. I say this every time, but, you know, we didn't even get into your brilliant chapter about sex work, your brilliant chapter <laughs> about, you know, the state and trans people. There's a lot more in there. So I'd really encourage anyone listening um, to, to buy this book. It's called The Transgender Issue, and it is out in shops now. This episode is sponsored by Picador. A glorious thing about the loosening of lockdown is that we have been able to tentatively return to theatre performances in person. And one of the most exciting places to see this summer has been Paradise, Kay Tempest's bold new retelling of Sophocles Philoctetes, performed at the National Theatre. If you haven't been able to catch this in real life,
1: Picador is proud to have published the script so that you can return to this exciting new translation from the Mercury Prize winning poet at any time. Paradise tells the story of Philoctetes, who lives in a cave on a desolate island. Stranded for 10 years, he sees a chance of escape when a young soldier appears with tales of Philoctetes' past glories, but with hope comes suspicion, and as an old enemy emerges, he's faced with an even greater temptation, revenge. Like brand new
0: ancients before it, Paradise shows Tempest gifts for lending old tales contemporary relevance, and is a brilliant new work from an author now widely acknowledged as a revolutionary force in British poetry, music, and drama. Paradise by K. Tempest is available at your local independent bookshop. This is Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright, and we are here to talk about books that changed the world. Small topic. Easy breezy. (laughs) So I thought, because it's such a grandiose claim, let's first talk about books that changed our minds about something and why they did that. So do you want to start, Octavia?
1: I do. And I guess this one, it wasn't that it changed my mind, but it's definitely something that opened my eyes. And it's... The Interpretation of Dreams by Sigmund Freud, mm. which I came across when I was about 16 and in an intensely analytical stage of life, doing a lot of that classic kind of teenage navel gazing and trying to find the deeper meaning in every single thing I did <laughs> and everyone else did. And I remember so vividly coming across this book. And obviously, Freud it was the name I'd heard and I was curious about. And I just it just kind of blew open a new dimension in my consciousness and gave voice to something that I'd been trying to figure out on my own. And I'd been a very vivid dreamer. So I found a lot that I could get my teeth into. It really felt like being given a whole new toolkit to understand the deeper meanings of life. And I think it actually was an incredibly helpful channel for my, I don't know, like teen intellect, I suppose, to go somewhere. Because you know what it's like at that stage of life, you can fall down all kinds of weird holes inside your own mind when you're developing like that. So I think, you know, whatever you might think of Freud now, and whatever I think of Freud now, the idea that the unconscious is this well full of messages and encrypted truths was just so exciting. Mm. And that book was the spark that began, you know, a lifelong so far fascination with with psychoanalysis and Plumbing the depths of of the mind, um, which translates over into my love of literature and my writing and and everything. So yeah, it was an extremely formative moment.
0: I've never read it, but I think it's a sign that I feel like I have because it's so permeated our society and our frame of of seeing the world. And I think that's a real marker, isn't it, for yeah. for books that make changes. I mean, that's a such a seminal seminal text in terms of how we understand exactly as you're saying how that how the mind works Um, yeah I think if you
1: read it now it wouldn't feel as revolutionary because as you say it's permeated the culture so intensely that I don't think much of it would feel new but if you imagine where things where the discourse was at the time it was published it was like a total
0: revolution in thinking what about you it's a book I'm sure I've mentioned before but for me, the one that immediately came to mind was Waves of Seeing by John oh, Berger. Yeah, you have mentioned it before. Yeah. And I'm so <laughs> glad you're mentioning it again because it's just the best. I mean, I think it kind of perfectly illustrates to me what books do well when they change your mind about something or, or change your perspective, actually, which is exactly what James Baldwin was talking about in that quote. It's like just shifting our perspective a bit. I was a pretty naive white kid from the suburbs and I loved art and I studied art in college. And I'm ashamed to say really that I couldn't see a lot of the ways in which the art that I studied and that I really loved reinforced power structures in the world. And I really didn't get that as part of my university education. But then a friend gave me John Berger and I read it and it was kind of that cliché once you see it, you can't unsee it. And rather than making me kind of hate the art, it just made me see it in a different way and deepened my understanding of it. And it did expand my world in a way that I'm so grateful for and in a way that I've been grateful for when I've when I've read other works by John Berger as well.
1: Totally. And I think the thing about Berger that is so exceptional is he writes in the most direct, clear, understandable way. And so he makes ideas that are rooted in quite complex theories a lot of the time, just completely accessible. And I think that's part of the power, isn't it? Like you can really change minds if you welcome them in
0: by reducing any barriers to understanding. Yeah. And actually, that was one of the questions that I wanted to ask you. Let's talk about nonfiction books in particular, because maybe just there are so many other things we could discuss in terms of fiction. But do you think that there's a style of writing that makes a nonfiction book more likely to affect change or change someone's perspective? Or is it just all about the ideas therein? are um, And I was thinking about this, especially in terms of kind of academic books like Judith Butler's Gender Trouble, which has been so influential in, in our culture, really, it's it's kind of filtered down. But it's really really impossible to read isn't it um and yeah. i and i wonder if that i don't know do you think it makes a difference
1: i think it does make a difference but i also think that there has to be room for that to be a bit of a process and i do think that there are there are some extremely complex ideas that have to be expressed in extremely complex ways first in order for them to be articulated properly so i think with judith butler what she's doing. Some people think, you know, oh, the impenetrable language is gatekeeping. I don't see it that way. I see it as the tool she needed to use to unpack these uh, ideologies that she wanted to break apart and then the next level of the work is then the, the people who interpret her writing and make it more accessible and then it trickles down and I don't think that's a problem in and of itself but of course it does mean that the ideas become diluted and they become inflected with other people's perspective and I do think that I think that something like gender trouble is really good example actually of the fact that something doesn't have to be written in accessible language for it to have a big influence in the wider culture because that is written in very difficult language and, as you said, is very influential. But obviously there's a time frame between publication of a book like that and its influence, which will span however long the trickle-down takes. Whereas something like Berger, I think Berger's writing is so influenced by his politics. He was a socialist and he didn't believe in gatekeeping. You know, At the heart of his theory is essentially that everything should be accessible to everyone. So I think that's why he's different. But I guess essentially, I don't think there's one way to do it. I really don't. And I think that universities, academics, you know, that's a complicated question because they are ivory towers of a certain kind. At the same time, you need to have places in society that are protected uh, in order to just be there for the kind of deepening of thought, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think it's more about how those ivory towers then communicate with everybody else. That's the question. And they, they must always be doing that. And that is the, the role of academics. You know, you go into your ivory tower, you become a specialist, you learn, you learn, you learn. And then ideally, you transmit that learning to a whole bunch of other
0: people. That's the goal, I think. What about you? I mean, I don't want to make this too much about universities, because I don't think those are the only places where ideas are born. And actually, some some of the most influential work usually isn't produced within universities, if you look at a list of, of influential works. But I think I agree with you. I think I sometimes get frustrated by complexity for complexity's sake. And I think that there is a certain way of academic writing that really prizes that. I don't think that academics see clarity sometimes as an important part of the work that they do, and that frustrates me. I also think there's a lot of stammishness about popularizing that goes on at universities. Um, yeah. And again, I'm speaking from my experience as an agent who represents a lot of academics, and who I see. You know, it's not always easy for people tra- to transition to writing for a big, popular audience because of the ways that's. Looked down upon, but I see that work, like especially academics, translating the work that they do into a format that is like accessible for people. One of the most important ways that information gets disseminated. So, yeah, I I, so I think I agree, but I really value clarity, and I really value authors who are able to get that across. I think George Orwell, who we we discussed before, actually when we were talking about the political essay um with Otega Yuagba is, is a great example of someone who wrote with such clarity. I think Rennie at Lodge, my client, is another example of that. She just she's able to break down pretty complex ideas.
1: Yeah. I think it's a symbiosis though. I do think it's a relationship between all the different stages of thought. You know, I I I basically I I sort of resist being absolutist about it in either way. Like I think that in a system of people trying to understand the world, you need all of it, you know? You need the people, you need the philosophers who think in almost mathematics and you need the journalists who can write really clearly and you need the academics and you need the readers and you need the poets, you know? You need everybody (laughs) in order to, to
0: change minds. Definitely. I think you're right. And I'm sure some of my resistance comes from being frustrated by like not immediately understanding philosophy right, <laughs> <laughs> or post-structuralism and being like, I hate this. <laughs> <laughs> I like to understand things. Let's talk about just a few other examples of nonfiction books that really change things. And maybe we could talk about categories a bit because there's so many different kinds of ways yeah. in which people can set out to change things, can't they?
1: Yeah well I mean my first up thought was just the the feminist writing that has had such an enormous effect on how society organises itself so of course that the kind of first one is the vindication of the rights of women by Mary Wollstonecraft which argued that women are deserving of education and that inequality is morally and ethically wrong and also socially and economically irresponsible which are all massive ideas now that people kind of well the majority of people I know anyway accept as red. but you know this really was an extraordinary Piece of writing when it first came around, and then you have things like the female eunuch by Jemaine Greer, which is now pretty problematic, and she's a transphobic feminist, which is a massive problem. But at the time, it was this enormous text that gave voice to years of female oppression and frustration. And the thing about Greer that you can't really argue with is that she does write in a very galvanizing way. Her voice is very powerful. And then of course, you know, before that, long before that was the second sex by Simone de Beauvoir, which has been translated into so many languages and and is still such a classic of just looking at how women are framed by misogynist and patriarchal societies. So I think that's like one tranche that I can see as being hugely, hugely important.
0: Yeah. And hearing you talk about that, you see how feminism has really been grounded in these actual texts that could apply to other theories about the world whether it's the communist manifesto you know right. like like yeah, rethinking yeah. class and work and diagnosing things in our society that are unequal and being able to say why and how and maybe giving a roadmap for change. Um, totally. But sometimes I think it's enough to diagnose, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Well, a recent one that I think is, is very influential is The Attention Economy by Tim Wu, which is all about social media and the way that uh, the online world is now and how, you know, our attention is the asset that all of these companies are are vying for and want and how we can kind of regain control and that the attention economy I would say is like in the same lineage as the communist manifesto in a way because it's again drawing a line around our current reality and saying have you ever thought about this from a completely different perspective like how do you relate to the systems of production of meaning and production of capital around you think differently you know You could
0: put um, Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff in that category as well. How technology is kind of changing the lives in which we live. Um, and, And I should also say, you know, there's a whole other category maybe of books about science that have changed the way we see the world and maybe and <laughs> oh, <those>. <laughs> <laughs> The Origin of Species, for instance, by yeah. by a man called Charles Darwin. Oh um, was, who's that was guy? Very influential, so they say. Okay, so we know that nonfiction books have changed the world, but have novels changed the world, Octavia. Do you think they can be agents for change? I truly, truly do,
1: yes. But I don't think you can necessarily talk about them on such a grand scale. I think that often the changes that novels bring about are deeply, deeply personal and very individual. And I think I could quite easily read a novel that doesn't change my perspective very much at all. You could read the same book and it could totally change how you think about something. So I think the power of novels to change is much more amorphous, but I think it's very profound. And I find, you know, I talk about books with people a lot which is a thing I love doing. And I love hearing from other people, which the books are that like blew their minds open in some different way. And that whether it's reading a novel about a culture that's not familiar to them, or whether it's about through the empathetic connection they have with a particular character, do you know what I mean? Like, so I, I am a firm believer in their power for change, but I do think it's just much harder to talk about it in general terms.
0: Yeah. I, feel that I am personally very invested in the idea of the novel being a moral form and having the ability to shift people's perspective in a way that is ethical and good Mm -hmm. in the world. And I sometimes question why I need that and what I think art really does. And I know that novels have changed me and I would hope they have changed me for the better when I think about our society more generally, as you say. I don't, you know, I think art on the whole is probably, it's good that it exists. I mean, I think it makes our individual worlds better. Some Sometimes I I think we're, we're living in a very moral time with a very rigid morality in some ways. And I think that means that we feel that we have to fit art into those moral frameworks and I do think that literature can expand our minds but I think literature can do a lot of other things and that we shouldn't look to books as being only kind of like tools teaching tools and I I know that's not quite what you're saying but I've been thinking about this a lot especially in the wake of um, George Floyd's murder and Uh, Again, Oteko Iwagba talked about this a bit, about like those reading lists that emerged and they would have like how to be an anti-racist next to beloved. And it's like it's kind of offensive to start thinking about books by black authors about the black experience as somehow just like medicine. I think we can think more widely about that, too. Like, I don't know if we should put novels into this box of being something that will improve us.
1: I think of it more as like, um, when you move through the world, you meet people, you have no idea you're going to meet them, you meet them and they change, they change your perspective, or you have a conversation with someone and you come away from it thinking, wow, I'd never thought of it like that before. And it's not like you look for every conversation you have to be um, something that changes your mind or improves your perspective or changes your perspective. But it happens incidentally, as you meet people, because people have an effect on one another. And I see novels as the same as that. So they're not things I go to with a moral goal in mind at all. But as I am touched by art, I am changed by it. And it's a kind of extraordinary alchemical surprise because I have no idea what's going to affect me and what isn't. So I think of it much, much more from the inside rather than the outside. And I think you're totally right. When we look to kind of art as medicine, it's very corrupting. And I don't think it's useful but I do think that we should always remain open to the fact that art will change us just as people will change us. Because I do think that collective change begins at the level of the individual and, it's about having an attitude of openness to to your evolution, essentially. The worst thing any of us can do is remain closed-minded about anything. Like neuroplasticity is, is a very vital part of being a human being. And so I think if you can move through the world in the spirit of openness, which is very hard sometimes, especially when things are difficult, but if you do, then you will be profoundly moved and affected and changed by the encounters you have. And that applies to art and literature as much as it does to human beings and information.
0: Yeah. And saying that, I do think narrative can be a very influential means for change. And there is a kind of novel that does very openly try to tell a story in a way that will influence the way that people think about things. I was thinking about, say, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, which is this book about the meatpacking district in Chicago and the kind of terrible conditions there for the workers, and it was really written by Sinclair as a means of drawing people's attention to what was happening there. Um, and he felt that by telling a story about it, rather than just reporting on it, he could make people a lot more sympathetic to this plight. Interestingly enough, he it didn't go quite as planned because people were really outraged about the um, way food was being produced in the book and so like he wrote it as a kind of like socialist tract about like the necessary for our workers to organize and what ended up happening was a bunch of laws got passed about food safety in the U.S. which was important <laughs> but it's, it's interesting it's an interesting parable and I think films are a good example of that as well like the films of Ken Loach for instance like right. those films are all about using narrative to make a political point really.
1: Right. And the thing is, often we can be moved to make political change by feeling, you know, we're emotive beings, human beings, and often appealing to somebody's emotional kind of world can be more powerful than appealing to their intellectual world. Mm, mm, Totally. I mean, I'm
0: certainly that way.
1: Yeah, me too. Get me in the feelings and I will, you know, be much more receptive probably.
0: All right, I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright and also Sean Fay to give our book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start us off, please?
1: I'd love to, mainly because I'm just extremely excited to talk about this book. It's a novel called Paul by Daisy LaFarge. And... Honestly, it's been a while since I read a novel in one sitting, and I very nearly did with this one. And the only thing that stopped me was that I had to tear myself away to go to sleep. But it honestly, it's hypnotic. It's such evocative writing. And Daisy's a poet. She published a really phenomenal book of poetry, I think last year, called Life Without Air, if I'm right in remembering. But um, this is a novel, and she brings her poetic talent for creating, I guess it's like a A totally distinct atmosphere but she does it without using very many words you know that classic kind of poet sensibility for unusual descriptors and very specific combinations of words that make a feeling or a sensation I guess they kind of leap off the page and into your own body that was my experience anyway of reading this book so the story is set in the south of France which also just You know, I haven't left the country for a long time, so reading about somewhere else was just blissful. And it's set during a few summer weeks that the narrator Francis, who's twenty years old, spends helping out on an eco farm called Noah Noah. And when she's there, she falls under the spell of its charismatic and potentially a little sinister owner, Paul, who's this older man. He's an amateur anthropologist and he has a special interest in Tahiti and the Pacific Islands. They get entangled in. a a sort of strange relationship and then basically what unfolds in the novel is this really expert exploration of toxic relationship dynamics and the loss of self that you can find sneaks up on the less powerful person in an imbalanced couple But it's also about the toxicity of colonialism and the problems with anthropology as a discipline and the trap of being amenable that so many young women fall into, especially when they're in circumstances that are unfamiliar. You know, just be polite, just be nice, just say yes, just, you know, protect yourself by being easy, easygoing. And then all of this is set against this incredibly rich description of the south of France in all of its glorious bounty and the heat and the cicadas and the maritime Alps. So you're pulled in these two directions because the story in itself is quite sinister but the sort of setting is really luscious and I don't know it was definitely the most kind of exciting and energizing novel I've read in a long time so I I was very happy to to get my hands on it
0: that sounds so good I love the idea of words going into your body
1: yeah I was very it was a very physical experience I think also because like a lot of you know, women, I've had those experience in my younger life. (laughs) And so there's something, I don't know, it really recalls that feeling of feeling powerless in the company of an older man with Mm -hmm. more power than you. Yeah, it's, it's really fantastic.
0: Sean, what's your recommendation?
2: My recommendation is The Right to Sex by Amir Srinivasan, who is a a brilliant philosopher. like um, She's at All Souls College at Oxford, which is the elite of the elite of kind of, you have to be a very smart person to be a fellow there. And the title of the book, The Right to Sex, is a series of five essays on kind of modern feminism. It's taken from an uh, LRB, London Review of Books essay, the title um, she did, I think in 2017 or maybe 2018, that I remember reading at the time. It starts with Elliot Rogers, who was a self-declared incel who used to post online about the fact that women wouldn't have sex with him and that kind of whole movement, and then became obviously radicalised, and he ended up um, in 2014 engaging in a um, university shooting in Santa Barbara and killed himself, and kind of starts with him and kind of expands. That original essay expands out to this idea of we have these odd tensions in feminist discourses right now about, um, you know, obviously with incels, the right to sex there is obviously very poisonous and misogynistic, But about that question, does anyone have a right to sex, is something that, sex is much more complicated than that. We've made this kind of idea of consent and non-consent, but of course, what about the ways that our desires are shaped by politics? There can be things that can be legal, but are they still ethical? And whilst there's been a kind of recent, you know, maybe people think of kind of the idea of like third wave feminism being very sex positive, of course, it's harder when you see perhaps, like, you know, pornography or erotica or whatever that kind of is racist and, for, and helps formulate racist desires in society. And she does even look at, at trans people too, is about, yeah, the idea about these recurring questions, is it transphobic to, you know, if you were to find someone attractive and then find out they're trans and then you no longer to desire them. And I think what's so great about this, the book, and it's expanded into five different essays, and they look at um, pornography, and they look at, you know, modern feminism's relation to the state using police as a response to ma- male violence, and how that can intersect with the racism of police and things like that. Is it's just a, it's it's a very just, dis- it's a very uncomfortable read. It's very ambivalent. It takes, you know, different arguments from different strains of feminism, and yeah, it's it, it's deeply uncomfortable. And I think where we're used to kind of infographic <laughs> Instagram feminism, what I love about it so much is that there's an ambivalence, there's a contradictoriness, there's a kind of exploration with a high degree of nuance about these very, very challenging questions of consent, of pornography, of sex work. And yeah, I think I think it's really going to be one of those seminal texts for how we might start to kind of reconcile these tensions between the idea of the second wave of feminism and the more recent kind of third or fourth wave that we've been living through maybe online, where to have a conversation between those two strands of thought and to see if there's kind of a new, more nuanced way of thinking about about feminism.
1: I can't I wait remember to read that, that essay. Yeah, it was absolutely
0: blinding. Such a smart woman. My recommendation is the novel Circe by Madeline Miller it is Miller's second novel after Song of Achilles. I have to say that I hadn't picked up her novels before, in part because I was very skeptical of like, what seems to be an endless procession of novels that are repurposed Greek myths. There's like, (laughs) there's like three new ones every year. And I just, I don't know, that doesn't really interest me so much. Um, Feminist retelling always like is a little bit of a red flag in, in my head in some ways. But anyway, so many people told me to read this that I downloaded the audiobook, which is my new discovery, as you know, I Artavia. love
1: how into
0: audiobooks you are yes, right now. it's I, great. In
1: my days of book at bedtime, I'm feeling so vindicated. I'm yeah, so I'm, pleased.
0: I'm really into audiobooks. I, I was listening to on my run today and it was excellent. But anyway, this audiobook is read by an actress named Perdita Weeks. Can you believe that name? And in fact, my name's Octavia, darling, (laughs) so I kind of Yes, I was going to say. (laughs) (laughs) You you can't be dissing
1: Perdita. We have an Octavia on the line. I'm not
0: dissing her. I'm I'm not dissing her. I'm just reveling in it. And actually, I looked her up and she has siblings named Honeysuckle and Rollo. Isn't that amazing? Good for them. (laughs) That's wonderful. (laughs) Anyway, her accent is incredibly posh which which was not a huge surprise but she has a very she has a very very beautiful voice and i was a little bit annoyed at her at first but then i got into it as you always do but anyway in terms of the book itself i knew circe as you might as the witch who turns odysseus's men into pigs but virtually nothing else about her but this novel tells her story from when she's born until after many years after she meets odysseus and her kind of intersection with many figures from greek myths along the way and i think miller's gift her real gift is that she somehow manages to make the lives of gods these like immortal beings who control the sun into real lives into into real stories into emotional narratives that you truly truly care about and it's totally riveting and moving Her writing style is very lyrical. It's very beautiful. And the story, which could have so easily been like a Forrest Gump of Greek mythology, because it does (laughs) touch on a lot of different Greek myths throughout and characters who you've kind of heard of, but you get a different side of the story. But it becomes this intensely moving meditation on mortality and what mortality means. and the human condition if I may so anyway I really I really liked it but I would also say it's a good audiobook because it's very plot driven and kind of easy to follow as well so if if you're looking for an audiobook I would really recommend it and I I will say I was too quick to judge repurposed Greek myths because some of them are good (laughs) (laughs) I read
2: the song of Achilles I think a few years ago because it really had like a flurry I think like every basically every gay man I knew was reading it because I think it's quite like it's some <laughs> quite sexy bits <laughs> so I think it had that kind did of did you enjoy like, it you could, I did enjoy it but yeah it had that kind of like sort of vibe of like everyone could like they're sort of reading stuff that they find kind of hot but, they're, but they're sort of it's also got sort of, <laughs> <Yeah>. a nice <laughs> literary edge where you can play up that it's you know it, it is serious literature but yeah I did, well I Cersei not
0: as hot so oh, no. maybe I need to read Song of Achilles because that's a extra fun angle that's all the time we have for today thanks to Sean Fay and to Eddie Knight for editing and music Literary Friction is available as a
1: podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram, and you can get in touch with us by email, lipfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please do rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a massive difference and it helps us reach new listeners.
0: We'll be back soon with another mini Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.